This evening I'd like to speak about faith, faith, confidence in our potential for transformation. We are here together, karmically, because we have something in common with one another. And that is that each one of us has come to be on this particular spiritual path and to be here together because we have some intuitive intelligence that we can do it, that it's possible for us. We might even, through the practice that we've done already, have some experiential understanding through being able to go beyond places that have been difficult for us and to reach deep places within us where we have experienced some measure of peace. All the kitchen people, I think. So in talking about faith, our confidence and our potential for transformation, for awakening, we may express it in different ways, of course. Um, We have our own language for this. And maybe they come from a Christian background or a Muslim background or um, all different uh, kinds of spiritual paths. We all have this common yearning, this wholesome sense of yearning to be more peaceful within ourselves. No matter what stones are thrown into the pond of our lives, into the pond of our minds and hearts, we have some deep understanding that in some way, the ripples in the pond will come back to some peace. They'll come back to some serenity. They'll come back so we can see clearly. The ripples will quiet down. We have some wholesome yearning to be more content, to be more at ease with ourselves, especially to be more at ease with what's going on in the world in our relationship to our nearest uh, relations, to our community, to the world at large. To be at ease so that we can see clearly and act in a way that is helpful to ourselves and others. So that we can live in our lives enjoying the passing experiences of joy and happiness yet not hang on to them and also not get lost or not get identified or go down the rabbit hole of um, real difficulty when we have moments of real uh, torture in our, in our hearts and our minds because of what's happening in our lives so that there's less reactivity to what is going on. So as we deepen in our awareness practice, with the support of compassion and loving-kindness, we become more aware of that wholesome yearning. And this isn't that wanting that's, you know, causes us to continue to be on this wheel of suffering. It's that yearning to be free. That's what brought us here together. Free from the tenacious habit patterns 
And it's, it's kind of unfortunate, but we really have to go through these first few days of retreat. And sometimes we call this day or yesterday maximum dukkha day. <laughs> it's a time when, you know, you come from your life and you really feel more secure enough, quiet enough, and the pond of your mind-heart gets still enough because of the stillness and the silence outside that we can see more clearly what's really going on inside and we can't deny it. Someone said today that it's a really hard thing to just be with oneself. Even though we feel such support around us of everybody doing the best they can, we feel that support and yet we feel so alone in looking at ourselves and that's really true. Because if we had all the distraction of talking to one another and needing to do our politeness every day with one another, we wouldn't have that kind of deep looking inside that we do. That's so essential that the world doesn't give us, really. That yearning, that spiritual aspiration that we have is something really, really wholesome. It's towards going to what is yet unknown. There's so much that we already know and it gets really tedious going over and over and over it in our thinking minds. And there's nothing wrong with thinking. We can solve a lot of problems that way, but a lot of them we can't. You know, it's just the same old thing we come out with. So we really have to go beyond that place of just thinking about it and experiencing what the inner life is trying to show us over and over again. So when we can venture beyond the known, this is the the birth of real faith. When we can venture beyond what we already know, this is real faith. We might even experience this um, journey as a spiritual urgency In Pali, that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were first handed down in, the word is samvega, spiritual urgency, is what it means. It's about putting all of our energy towards freeing the heart of the causes of suffering. And there's something so innate about that with human beings that can be touched by the Dharma or the truth of life. And we've allowed ourselves to come here, even, you know, when it's um, somebody else wants us to be here. We're here. And it's our karma, so to say, to be here. And we're facing the truth of life. And this is not easy. While we do this, while we're looking at what's really going on, we're developing, even though we're facing, and because we're facing all of these hardships, these difficulties that we encounter, we're developing a lot of stamina, a lot of spiritual stamina. This is really important on the path. We're developing generosity of the heart, being able to give ourselves this kind of love so that we can give that kind of love to others. We're developing compassion when we face this kind of suffering. And we're developing, of course, this very ever-deepening and strengthening awareness. Larry Rosenberg, the guiding teacher of um, 
Cambridge Insight Meditation Center nearby, says that this samvega, or spiritual urgency, leads to the conversion, the freeing of the heart, from an egocentric existence to a search for what is timeless, vast, and sacred. So even though we can't articulate that in this particular way, that's what's happening as we're here in practice together. We're going beyond the confines of what we've known. So in our own unique ways, we have this aspiration for ourselves. Our deepest need for a human being on this path is not just that we fulfill our basic survival needs. It's much more than that. It's not just for doing good in the world. That's not what we're here for ultimately, even though that that is something that we can do and it's good to do. But we're really here for the need to really see beyond our habit patterns and to develop habit patterns that are onward leading beyond the ways that it causes suffering. So what do I mean by aspiration? I don't mean a fixed goal because sometimes we think about this goal for nirvana or nibbana or sometimes we come to practice with a goal to experience permanent kind of bliss. But that's not the aspiration I'm speaking about. This aspiration is about a dynamic process to continually deepen and strengthen awareness and all of the other beautiful qualities of heart that bring us to the place of deep understanding, of liberating understanding. Not just understanding ourselves and psychologically why it's like this or like that or scientifically why it works. Those all help in the understanding. But there's a deeper understanding that can come. And I'll, I'll start going into that later in, in the talk here. So this awakening of dormant capacities is what we're undergoing. This dynamic process we're all together in. When we develop these beautiful qualities of heart, this generosity of heart, this loving kindness that we're uh, habituating the mind and heart to every afternoon, inclining the mind and heart there over and over again, when we give of ourselves and we show up uh, when we can here in the hall for the teachings, for our walking practice, for our yogi job, This is the generosity and the love that we're building up for ourselves and for all human beings. This compassion, this love, this uh, ability to be with, no matter what's happening, is uh, uh, really, really strong. And it can overcome the deepest, deepest difficulties that we have because they can become stronger and really be what the mind and heart incline to automatically. They can be the default setting of the minds and hearts and not the things that come up that's difficult for us. So as we participate fully in this awakening process, there is an experiential understanding of what leads to the good. We see the laws of cause and effect at work. We, we see what leads to beneficial what's nurturing and cultivating that onward leading 
And we also understand experientially what leads to suffering. It takes sometimes a long time before we realize that this kind of thinking that we, we do over and over again on particular subject matters really isn't getting us anywhere. Why don't we just stop and be aware of the breath or the song of the birds or a moment of aversion that's coming and going and just kind of get underneath it all. Nothing is wrong with thinking. It's just that we believe it. And we let it go on and on and on and let the beliefs run our lives. So the thinking will come, but we don't have to just follow it all the time. We can just see it go by like a bird or like a a cloud that might bring some thunder. So sometimes it takes everything we've got within us to stay with what's happening. And I think I can speak with every one of us here that it hasn't been easy. You know, you might see us walking in here and it you might think we're walking on a cloud or something and we're sitting down and, you know, it's all roses and, um, you know, feathers and all of that. <laughs> it's been a hard road for every single one of us in, in many ways. You know, I could tell you stories. And Vance and Mark and Deb can tell you stories that you, you might not even believe that we, we've gone through. But every single one of those moments has really been important to us because it has built our strength. It's enabled us to be here, to be able to say to you, it's possible. You can do it too. You're not that much different from us. When I had um, raised all of my... um, children, they're adults now. I don't know why we keep calling them children, adult children, I guess. Um, Sometimes I can't even remember they're my child. I call my daughter my sister or my brother, my son, I say my brother. It's so different now. But when they got older and I could leave um, the house and be away for a long time, I went to ordain as a nun for the first time. I ordained temporarily. You don't have to ordain for life when you go to Burma. You can ordain temporarily like Deb did. She ordained for a year as a nun there. And so when I got there, I had been to that um, center in the forest other times before as a layperson. But this time I was really wanting to practice a deeper level of renunciation, so I ordained as a nun. And our teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, um, he's, he wants you to be very short and to the point. You know, and so he is that way to us. He wants to just let us whittle down what we really want to say and just say it. And so when I came in, I, I did my bows, and when I sat down before him, he said he just said, why are you here? And, you know, he, he doesn't do any like, oh, it's wonderful to see you. He just says, <laughs> why are you here? And I said, the first thing I thought of was, I'm here to purify my heart even more. And so he said to me something unusual. He said, in order to do that, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. 
You must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. And he didn't mean, you know, my financial resources. What he meant was for me to look inside my heart and to realize and to recognize and acknowledge the wholesome qualities of mind that had already been developed to different degrees, to some degree, some were not as much as others, and use them in my practice to really invest those. And not, not like with pride, but with full acknowledgement that they're present. And it, it might be just a moment, a little moment one time of loving kindness uh, to myself, and another moment of courage that I can take that next step. When I felt, at one time, I felt like there were four horses tied to each one of my limbs and pulling me apart in different directions and to be able to still keep going. So he said, you must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice, to recognize recognize the forces already within you. And so some of those forces are still being developed in you, in me, in all of us, and some are already developed. The fact that you can show up for all the sittings, for as, as many as you can, show up for your yogi job and your walking. And I mean, we're doing a lot of practice here. This is a lot. I was just going off on a tangent. I was reading this spy book one time. I, I like to read those to kind of relax my mind once in a while. And <laughs> one, of, um, one of the spies said, they were talking about where they were trained or something. And one of the spies said, oh, that's nothing. I've been to a Vipassana retreat. You know? <laughs> this, this is really training. This, this, is no, <laughs> this is not a spa, as you probably have realized. So, <laughs> so we need to bring forth that faith that we have in ourselves. So it's energy of faith. It isn't like, oh, oh, this blind belief that we can do it. Faith is an energy. It's an energy that we put into our practice. And sometimes in one moment, it's, it's just that step of courage that you can have to keep going. Or you, okay, I'll go into the hall, or I'll go sit outside, or whatever it is. Or you'll, you'll um, take a nap instead of coming into the hall because you know you need that sleep finding your balance. It's said that faith is regarded as a hand. It's regarded as a wise hand that takes hold of what is truly valuable in terms of your highest spiritual aspiration. So we, we didn't just come here to, you know, have some moments of calm or to be quiet or to just have, you know, our food prepared for us. <laughs> If there's much more that we're here for, and we're, we're offering that to you, so take advantage of it, because you don't know if you're ever going to get it again. So what is your highest spiritual aspiration? Maybe you haven't really taken a look at that yet. It's, it's sometimes important to say, isn't it, isn't it f- far more, farther ranging than just having an easy life. Maybe it's some kind of freedom 
from those habit patterns that drive us crazy. That would be a pretty high goal, actually, aspiration. It's said that this hand of faith seeks after and takes hold of particular opportunities, spiritual friendship and wise counsel. So we have that here. Opportunities to hear and read the Dhamma. Opportunities to practice like this in this kind of um, incredible support that we have. This is very rare in the world. To take advantage of this is a wonderful, this is really good karma for all of us to be able to take advantage of this. It's really good karma ripening. So why not? Anything that inspires faith to carry on with our highest aspirations, this is what the hand takes hold of, this hand of faith. In Pali, that ancient language I talked about, the word for faith is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. It's not a noun. It's more like a verb. It's a process. It means to establish, to establish trust. So in the Abhidhamma, in the, um, what they call the higher Dhamma, uh, the characteristic of faith is to establish trust. It's not the trust that thinks that, you know, this faith or this understanding is going to just fall from the sky into our hands. It's something that we actually participate in. It's a process we participate in, mainly through the awareness continuity, through having that general kind of awareness as we go through the day, and maybe more precise awareness when we're sitting and walking in that, in that kind of practice. When we have that continuity of awareness, the manifestation of faith is non-fogginess. So the mind becomes clear, decisive, and resolute when this happens, just by being aware. Why? Because we, ha- we see what's really happening. We see the truth of the moment. And even though it's not some far-out truth that's going to set us free or put a halo over our heads right away, when we see the truth of the moment, when we really face how things are, it's clearly known without avoidance or without running after, away from it, because uh, we want to run to something more pleasant. When we can see the truth, we can trust that. Even if it's hard, We can trust the truth when we see aversion in the mind, when we see hatred in the mind or fear, or we see courage in the mind, or we see compassion. We can trust it. Because of that non-fogginess, there's resolution to keep going. It says that the function of faith is to clarify. It's like a water-clearing gem. This, uh, they have these water-clearing gems that they say you put in murky water and it causes all the murkiness to settle down and the water becomes clear. So that in that clarity, we see what's really happening and it's, uh, the opposition uh, to that is fear. So we can face f- fear when that happens because things become clear and we know what to do. We trust ourselves. 
says in the scriptures that we're able to enter into the waters of life and to set out, quote unquote, crossing the flood, crossing the flood of samsara, crossing the flood of suffering. So this imparts confidence, which overcomes the hindrances. And um, Deborah spoke about the hindrances this morning. This is why we call this uh, day or yesterday Maximum Dukkha Day, because a lot of the hindrances come to the foreground and they're known much more clearly. Attachment, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. This is very common and, of course, you're all experiencing that. But the more that the the strength of awareness continues, uh, you'll see that that won't bother the mind as much. Your faith in yourself will will grow. And because of that, there'll be an ability to face more and more difficulties. And they, they, they can be the same intensity sometimes of difficulty that you had maybe on the second or third day. Maybe that same intensity of difficulty can come on the sixth day or the seventh day, but the mind isn't so bothered by it. It's able to be with it because of the development of all those Uh, powerful qualities of the mind. It's said that there are three areas of faith uh, that we can have faith in, in our teachers, in the teachings, and in oneself. So I I want to, um, just talking about the whole realm of faith, just fill those out a little bit. So just from from my own experience, finding a teacher... Um, it wasn't like I was looking for one. It's always like they say, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. When you really want to learn, the teacher appears before you. When you really want to take it in and apply it for yourself. Not just agreeing with somebody because, you know, they sound okay or it's wonderful. It's not just about shaking your head. It's about doing it yourself. So in the 70s, I signed up for a month-long retreat. I went from a weekend to a month-long, like boom, just like that. (laughs) But I was like many of you, I was wondering, like, what am I doing here? You know, what did I sign up for? Well, I had uh, three children, and um, I was a single parent at that time, and (laughs) that's probably the why why I went to the (laughs) month-long retreat. (laughs) Um, in fact, I got there because I went to um, I went to like a spiritual fair at the University of California in Santa Cruz one time. That was where I was living, and uh, it said, you know, I was going down Highway One, and it had an announcement of what was going on. So I thought, oh, I'll drive in. I, I went in with my three young children, and they were all pulling at my my skirt and everything they wanted didn't want to be there and it was a big cavernous place about twice as big as this maybe three times this you know widthwise and lengthwise and I looked around you know those were kind of the hippie days and there was a lot of incense and drumming and bells and things like that and I I looked around and I wondered should I stay or should I go with the you know Maybe the kids want something to eat. And I saw far in the corner 
a sign. There was all kinds of beautiful things. But far in that corner was a sign that said, Silent Retreat. And I went right for that sign. (laughs) (laughs) Honest. And so I I met a few people who... um, who said they were doing a weekend retreat and they were preparing for this teacher from India to come, and that was Manindraji. So I went to that weekend retreat and I signed up for the month long. And he was, it was going to be his first time in America. And he, he was going there and then he was coming over here to visit Joseph and Sharon. And so um, it was an ambitious intention and I arranged for myself to go, but honestly, I, I had to go home and check on them. And um, I come from a, a relatively, you know, clannish family, and we take care of each other. So I had good, good people to take care of, relatives and everything, taking care of my children. They were used to that. So that was all okay for us. Anyway, I, I arrived for registration, and um, it was late. And I, I didn't have a, a, a place in a bedroom anymore. So they gave me a place in a hallway. And it was, it was not a, a narrow hallway. It was, you know, wide enough. It was probably like one of your hallways up here that I've been in those rooms also that you guys, have, you people have been in. And um, so they said, this is where you're going to sleep. You're in the hallway. You're going to put down your bed there. It was just kind of like a, a roll-up camping thing. And this is, this is for you, and you can put your stuff in this closet over here and put the bedding away. And I, I was quite happy. That was okay, you know. So um, I was putting down my bedding, and then I saw approaching me who I thought to be was Manindraji because they had described him to me, this beautiful little um, Indian man with very shiny dark skin. And he was coming towards me and he wore white robes. And uh, I thought, oh, here comes Manindraji. He's going to say something so spiritual to me. You know? <laughs> but he said, he came to me and he said, is this where you'll sleep? And I said, Yes, and he said, oh, no, no, you cannot sleep there. You must get good rest. And so he said, I can find another place. You can take my room. And it was like, you know, I just knew that was my teacher. He was so, like, human, so humble, so there was that automatic generosity and caring and he was talking to me as if I was his his daughter you know or something like that like he was my relative and not this kind of high muckamuck teacher and so I sort of my heart opened to him and I I felt like I could trust him and I resonated with his down-to-earthness I also knew that he was really considered to have extensive knowledge of the teachings, even though he was like that, you know, very humble and down-to-earth. With Manindra, maybe some of you have heard the stories from Joseph, you would ask him one question, if you were in a room with people, you would ask him one question, and he would somehow relate it to all the, the whole of the Dharma, and he wouldn't stop until the last person would leave the room. He, would just, he could just keep on going, 
So that was my direct experience of having faith in a teacher. And I know it's not always like that. That's kind of rare, you know, that we don't have those kind of days anymore. It's it's a little bit upper middle class now. You know, you've got your own rooms and everything. And nobody's going to come and offer you their, their room <laughs> as a teacher. So he was also very... I saw a lot of imperfections in him as I was kind of growing up in the Dharma. I was in my 20s then. I had three children, I think, by the time I was 25. So... Um, when I would talk, what I'd call him on his imperfections too. And I'd say, Manindraji, are you upset? You know, I, you, you look, you sound a little grumpy or something. And he would say, yes, upsetness is there, but I am not upset. Because, <laughs> because what he meant was there is no I. He would just see it coming and going, you know, like everything else. But there would be a, a little on his face, you know, when I didn't, cook the Indian things just the way he wanted them. I was a terrible cook anyway. So when I would call him on something, he would say, my path is not yet finished. And he would be so honest. He was still working on uprooting greed, hatred, and delusion. A lot of it was, you know, a lot of it was ameliorated, uprooted, the fires had gone out a lot. And of course there was still some left. So he was not somebody who was pretending. And I, I thought, this, this is, I can, I can believe in him. So along the way, other teachers appeared and it was like going towards those spiritual guides and um, senior colleagues and junior colleagues and also children and also students learning a lot along the way from everybody. Manindra used to say, you can learn from every side. You can learn from every side. So, yes, we do. So there was a growing confidence in myself because I, I felt that I, I chose somebody that I could um, um, resonate with. And I, like, I wasn't with him all the time. People think when we talk about our teachers that, you know, we're there, they're there with us all the time. There, you know, you had to go to India to be with him or he had to come here. And that was far and few between. But I knew that that was a teacher for me. I, I could always feel his wings around me somehow. And my other teachers too. So... There was this growing confidence and I could feel like I could be directed towards more and more wisdom, more and more compassion, fulfilling the highest aspirations that I would have at that time for myself. And it's always changing too, of course. So here I want to say that whenever your light of faith is not so bright in the teacher, Manindra would always say, Look to the teaching then, not to the teacher. Because there's always some inadequacies. There's always some fault finding that we're going to see in our teachers because we're all human. So really check out the teaching very directly for yourselves. One time I went to Manindra, this was about 30 years ago, and there was some um, beautiful teacher around during that time. And the teachings that I 
read and received from that teacher were really touched my heart and really made sense to me. But then there was news of that teacher um, doing things that I, I felt weren't really on the path of non-harming. And so I went to Manindra and I said, how, how am I supposed to face this then when, when we come across something like this? And he said, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. You know, that they can do or say something, maybe that's their highest aspiration, but they haven't gotten there really yet. So how do we interpret the teachings then? You know, to look at them and, and ask ourselves, does this lead to harmony? Or does this lead to disharmony? Does this lead to more suffering? Use our own spiritual sensitivity, our own intelligence. That's what's important. There's a saying in, in this um, Dharma path that ehi pasiko, that's a... Um, two Pali words, ehi pasiko. It means come and see for yourself. Don't believe blindly what you read or what you hear. Test it out for yourselves. And this is what we're doing here. We're not saying believe this. We're saying be aware and see what happens. Incline your mind to metta in the afternoon. See what happens. Contemplate something in this way and then see where you where you go with that. We're not saying this is how you have to look at things or be with things. Try it out for yourself. The Buddha gave this response to a group of citizens from the town of Kesaputta in India during that time. And these people were called the Kalamas. They had been visited by religious, religious teachers of very divergent views, so they were very confused. They didn't know who to believe. And so they asked the Buddha what to do. And so he replied to them, Come, Kalamas, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon bias toward a notion pondered over and over again, nor upon the consideration, this monk is our teacher. But when you yourselves know these things are wholesome, bla- uh, unwholesome, blamable, censored by the wise, when undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, then abandon them. When you yourselves know these things are good, blameless, praised by the wise, undertaken and observed. These things lead to benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide in them. So he's asking this uh, of all of us to see for ourselves, to understand in our own ways. So that's faith in teachers, faith in teachings, and faith in oneself. First, I want to say, connected to faith in our teachings and in our teachers, that sometimes in the beginning I had to borrow the faith of my teachers because I didn't have enough faith sometimes in myself. It, got, it could get really hard, um, as you yourselves know. 
Manindra would tell stories of Deepama. She was uh, his actually a cousin or a relative in the same family, Barua family of India. And Deepama was his student as well. So he taught Deepama these amazing practices. And I never met her, but she became a role model for me because she was a householder and not um, in robes. She was not a nun. And so I wanted somebody to look up to that has really done the practices and can uh, really understand deeply and be freed from the deep habit patterns that torment us. So when I heard stories about her, he would often speak of her. She was a housewife and a mother, just like me, and she had tremendous suffering in her life. A lot of physical illness, loss of children and her husband. But her faith in the Dhamma and in herself had to match that suffering in order for her to um, really keep going in her practice. There's a story about her when she was really um, sick and she was very weak, how she wanted to get to the Dhamma Hall to do her practice with everybody else to hear a teaching by one of the great teachers there, Mahasi Sayadaw, one our grandfather teacher. And she even crawled to the Dhamma Hall. Now, I'm not expecting anybody to do this. If you're sick, stay in bed. But, <laughs> but she, that's a kind of faith that she had. You know, she's listening to the Dhamma, you know, getting wise counsel, all of that. She was quite astonishing in her meditative abilities. I, I don't want to speak too much of them because they can seem really, really far out. But you can get a book about her called Knee Deep in Grace, and it might be called differently now, but it's all about Deepama. And I think the book will be um, available to you at the end of the retreat. So those were the early days when the stories of housewives and lay people became enlightened and they experienced the, the Dhamma to different degrees, to, you know, the, the call the first stage, we are safe there, because you can't go backwards anymore. You're, you're going to keep deepening and purifying your mind more and more. So the stories were told about her in such a way that I took in, if she can do it, I can do it. And I, I really never lost that Sometimes I would lose sight of it, but it was always there for me. So that was, to me, the beginning of this inner certainty that I had about my own capacity for transformation. I want to read to you something from um, Jack Engler. He's been an instructor at Harvard Medical School And he teaches, or he taught psychotherapy. I think he's retired now. He has had very, very deep practice. And his teacher is also Manindraji. And he wrote about Deepama. He said, Deepama had this unshakable and contagious conviction that of course enlightenment was possible. It never crossed her mind for a minute that it wasn't. She conveyed that in everything she said or did. It was one of her gifts as a teacher. I think, to make you say, well, of course it's possible. 
When she thought a student's practice was ripe, she would tell them to settle their affairs at home and come and stay in a room next to hers and devote themselves exclusively to practice. Give me a week, give me two weeks, she would say. And it was typically during this one short period of intensive practice that they experienced awakening. So it's possible. And uh, I met some of these people when I went to visit her daughter in, in India a few years ago. So at different junctures on the path, faith in oneself is really challenging. To have faith in, our, in the teachers that we've chosen can be easier sometimes. To have faith in the teachings sometimes can be, we can understand it, we can believe it, but to actually apply is very hard. So come and see for yourself. Um, The Buddha would say, I cannot do it for you, our teachers would say. The teachers show you the way, but you have to walk it yourself. And that takes a lot of faith from all of us. So, what we begin to see when we have faith in ourselves and when awareness is stronger is we see into and beyond this very complex psyche that we were born with and we may be made more complex through our lives. That even though we understand to some degree impermanence or how life isn't going to give us any lasting pleasure, sure, we've got some pleasure in life. It comes and it also goes enjoy it when it's there. We understand that more and more deeply in the practice and this gives us greater and greater measures of freedom when we understand impermanence so deeply that when pleasant experiences come and they leave, it's okay, it's not a problem. It's still hard to live in life. It doesn't make everything okay but we come to understand impermanence so deeply because we see it on a moment-to-moment level. And we come to understand this uh, self which we think is solid and something like some kind of concrete thing or there's a core of something inside of us that's running the show. We really come to see how ephemeral it all is and we stop identifying so much with this sense of self. There's a lot of freedom there. We still have the qualities, beautiful qualities of mind that get us through life and that help us face the difficulties in life. But dropping that sense of self that we get so identified with and that causes a lot of harm to ourselves and to others sometimes, this gets lighter and lighter in life. And one of us is going to talk more about that later. So it's this ever-deepening process that we're in. The habit patterns that cause so much pain just begin to dissolve more. They get more ephemeral. They're not so bothersome. There are some times, of course, we have that Achilles heel, that one place in our lives which we're really working through that bother us places of abandonment or places of um, deep hurt that happened earlier in our lives that are the more difficult places. But with our devotion to one's path 
and keeping up the practice, patience, endurance, stamina, compassion for oneself, all of these grow stronger and stronger. And we're able to take it one moment at a time, one sitting at a time, one day at a time, knowing that we're developing habits of mind that are going to far outweigh and far outstrong the other habits that kind of bring us down in our lives. So to develop more stamina and endurance and just to take time for myself, I did a a walk last year. Um, I did that Camino de Santiago walk. Have any of you done that, Camino de Santiago? It's a walk in Spain that's actually starts from many different places in Spain and in Portugal. It starts from Italy, France, Switzerland, Germany. It starts from Great Britain to... There are many pathways. Um, sometimes you have to take a boat to get to the Camino and to get into Spain to start walking. And so I um, took this walk not because it's strictly for Catholic pilgrims, but it's for all people of all walks of life. That it, it's a walk where you you clarify, you purify, you simplify your life. And I really wanted to do that. So where we go towards is this uh, place called Santiago de Compostela on the um, west coast of, of Spain. And I started from the middle of Spain last year. And I walked... Um, from a place called Leon, which is about almost in the middle. And I, I only had two weeks, so I did a, I walked about 100 miles a week. And that was a big act of faith because I never walked that far in a day in my life. Um, you had to walk approximately 15 miles a day. And sometimes, you know, it would be 11 days, and uh, 11 hours or 11 miles, and sometimes it would be 20. But sometimes I thought I wouldn't make it. Like, we would start out, and we knew we were going to a certain town. I went with a nun, Buddhist nun friend of mine. And um, I, I just thought, at some place in the middle, I thought, well, can't we just stop here? <laughs> but no, we had to keep going. And sometimes at the beginning of the day... Um, she would make me look out and say, Kamala, I want you to look. She, she's a botanist, and so she's been out in the field a lot, and she's a great navigator. And so she'd say, this is where we're going. Now stand here and look. You see those two kind of, not they weren't so tall, but mountain ranges. We're going to go over those two. We're going to go up one and in the valley and go up another, and in the valley and we're going to end up where that snow is over there. And I would, I just couldn't believe it. I just really, but I said, well, okay. I would just put on my pack and get my walking sticks and and just keep going. And then we'd get there and she'd say, now look back. We'd get to the top of the, um, you know, a high point. She'd say, look back. That little village is where we came from. And it would be so amazing to me. And that's what, like, I, I would liken that to this path. I mean, it would be just like you're walking back and forth, but you don't think you can make it through the day sometimes. Um, 
Walking practice has been really wonderful for me, but it's the worst time for bringing up a lot of dukkha for me because I see a lot of dukkha. So sometimes in the walking practice, it felt like I was climbing mountains because so much would come up in emotionally and in the heart-mind. So this pilgrimage that has been going on for over a thousand years, by the way, has been a spiritual retreat for a lot of people. And it was really an act of faith that I did that. And by the way, all along the way, people would say to you, buen camino, buen camino, like camino means path or the way. Like, have a good path, have a good way. We'd say that to one another. And felt like I was so surrounded by loving kindness, goodwill all along. So I found a poem. I love the poet David White, W-H-Y-E-T-E. And he had done this pilgrimage. I don't know where he started, but we went uh, in on the same um, path. He could have gone farther than I did. So he wrote this uh, poem called Santiago. And it's about having the faith, really about having faith in oneself that we can navigate whatever we come across. So he says uh, in his poetry here, The road seen, then not seen. The hillside hiding, then revealing the way you should take. The road dropping away from you as if leaving you to walk on thin air, then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall. And the way forward, always in the end, the way that you followed, the way that carried you into your future, that brought you to this place, no matter that it sometimes took your promise from you. The sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation to have risked yourself for something that seemed to stand both inside you and far beyond you, that called you back to the only road in the end you could follow, walking as you did in your rags of love. And it continues, but I'll stop there. So we can have different kinds of faith. We can have blind faith, bright faith, verified faith. Blind faith is when you're not trusting your own experience, basically because you misplace your trust in others. You know, it's like when we find somebody that speaks the truth so well or thinks they, we, they exemplify it so well and we can just say, oh yeah, that's wonderful, that's good. And we can hear what they say and say, I agree. I agree, but we don't do it ourselves. We just, it's kind of like we're letting them live out our own aspirations. That's blind faith, when we just believe blindly that it can be done, but we really don't do anything about it ourselves. Bright faith is when a person or a book or a place inspires us and illuminates new possibilities for us. It's when I met Manindra when I met um, my, my teacher who still lives today. Manindra passed away. But uh, Sayadaw Upandita, who guided me a lot on the path, Manindra asked me to go to him for more practice. And the other teachers uh, uh, and uh, 
my senior colleagues like Joseph and Sharon, kind of lighting the way ahead of me and brighten my faith and so I could believe, oh, I, I really can see what good people they are and it's possible, it's possible. It kept me going. And then verified faith, when we've experienced fully the difficult uh, places ourselves, but we also have the ability and develop the balance and stability to stay with it and develop the skills because we stay with it, develop the skills to navigate that uh, inner terrain and have more and more confidence in what we're doing. The Buddha said that faith is likened to a seed. The seeds are put into the depth of the soil and the earth, like our faith going into the unknown, the as yet unrealized wisdom. From there the seed sends down roots, and the roots take in nutrients, these seeds of faith. Nutrients from the earth and the soil, minerals from the rocks, and from the water. And so then the conditions to support the growth from that faith are there. And when we are doing our practice here, we're really, we're laying the seeds of faith, but what we nourish them with is all the, all the moments of awareness that we put in the day, the continuity, the gentle, persevering <laughs> continuity of awareness, moment by moment, day by day, that persevering effort that's gentle, nourishes that faith. And what grows from that is virtuous conduct. This is from the teachings of the Buddha. What grows from that, those seeds of faith, are virtuous conduct through body, speech, and mind. Learning, leading to deeper understanding, generosity of heart, trusting in the laws of cause and effect, that meaning to say we, w- we understand that we're putting all these conditions together, we're nourishing all the conditions, we stay steady and we plant the seeds of faith in the teachings in ourselves and our teachers so that that faith will veer towards wisdom. And so finally in time, the downward roots have enough energy to send up a sprout and that sprout brings a plant and that plant bears fruit and then we taste the fruit of that. It's said that the Dhamma terms that fruit as serenity and liberating insight. So we then have this verified faith in ourselves through our own experience, not because somebody did it for us or that it was good enough that other people did it, but that we could do it ourselves to bring forth that inner strength and really apply it to our practice. So I really love uh, the way that in, in our culture, people of today write about the Dharma in their own way you know, like about nature, like David White and, and Mary Oliver. And so this is um, a poem of Mary Oliver 
and it's entitled Little Summer Poem Touching the Subject of Faith. And um, here she is facing a newly planted field of corn. Every summer I listen and look under the sun's brass and even in the moonlight, but I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. Not the pale roots digging down, nor the green stalks muscling up, nor the leaves deepening their damp pleats, nor the tassel making, nor the shucks, nor the cobs. And still, every day, the leafy fields grow taller and thicker, green gowns lifting up in the night, showered with silk. And so, every summer, I fail as a witness, seeing nothing. I am deaf, too, to the tick of the leaves, the tapping of downwardness from the banyan feet of roots, all of it happening beyond all seeable proof or hearable hum. And therefore, let the immeasurable come. Let the unknowable touch the buckle of my spine. Let the wind turn in the trees and the mystery hidden in dirt swing through the air. How could I look at anything in the world and tremble and grip my hands over my heart? What should I fear? One morning, in the leafy green ocean, the honeycomb of the corn's beautiful body is sure to be there. This is faith. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.